0: It was not the chemistry that changed from species to species. It was the extent to which the brain had evolved, the size of the brain. Black told us that arachidonic acid and glucosahexonolic acid were absolutely key components for the evolution of the brain throughout the mammalian species. And that set us off on the when we published the data in 1971,
1: Hello and welcome to The Science and The Story Behind Omega-3, a podcast brought to you by Wiley Companies, where we explore one of the most researched nutrients on the planet. Listen in as global omega-3 experts and researchers translate the science, reveal personal insights, and share their stories of discovery while navigating the sea of omega-3 science. For joining us today. Now, here's your host, Greg Lindsay.
2: Ah, welcome back to another episode of the science and the story behind Omega 3, where we talk with experts from all over the world. Our guest today hails from the Imperial College of London. He is former director of the Institute of Brain Chemistry in Human Nutrition was awarded the Gold Medal for Science and Peace from Albert Schweitzer International University and in 1962 led the research team to investigate the role of nutrition and disease in East Africa. Today, we will hear about his early discoveries on lipid, nutrition, and the brain. We are honored to welcome to the program today, Dr. Michael Crawford. Welcome, Dr. Crawford. We're excited to have you with us today. You have an amazing career and we are eager to hear your stories. We could jump in anywhere and have a fascinating conversation, but let's please start at the beginning. From what I understand, your omega 3 story began in Africa. We are interested in learning why you went to Africa and what you discovered. Can you tell us a little bit more about your story?
0: Well, I was working at the postgraduate medical school in London, and for some reason or other, Professor Sir John McMichael, who was head of medicine, asked me to his room one day. He'd just been to Uganda. And the British government was giving Uganda a brand new hospital as a giveaway present for its coming independence. And he said, there's an urgent need for people like me in the basic sciences to get out there and start basic sciences because he said, it is a complete open book. There is no contemporary disease such as we know it in the UK in Uganda. It's a completely different story. So he was so persuasive that we went to Bukeri in, in Uganda, and I set up biochemistry and chemical pathology teaching there and set up a research group as well. That's how it happened.
2: Well, what was it like being in Africa at that time? Can you tell us about the people and about your experiences there?
0: Well, uh, Sir so John was, was absolutely right. There was no... Mortality from cardiovascular disease, for example, there was no breast cancer or colon cancer to speak of. The primary health concerns of the adults was um, endomyocardial fibrosis, which was the commonest cause of death from heart failure, and volvulus or double volvulus of the sigmoid colon, which is extremely excruciatingly painful condition and the commonest surgical emergency. Well, have you ever heard of either of these two things? And the answer is no, because we don't see them in this country. And on top of that, primary of the liver, was the number one cancer. And there was very little, if anything, breast cancer or prostate cancer. In fact, that was so interesting that the National Institutes of Health at the time in the USA decided to send over a team to investigate if it was true, and the team found that it was absolutely true. Not only that, that Dennis Burkitt involved with his team, discovered the first viral cause for cancer in Burkitt lymphoma. So we weren't just a bunch of pigs sitting drinking gin and tonics as the sun went down. We were actually doing some very good work, and we published the first paper on the nutritional involvement in endomyocardial fibrosis, and indeed of um, aflatoxin and primary carcinoma of the liver. So it was really exciting days because of the contrast between what you saw in the UK and what you saw in Uganda. It's even more interesting because in in Uganda itself, you could drive, drive 100 miles and you came across a completely different list of disorders. And that told me very clearly that nutrition was fundamentally behind both the chronic diseases that we see in the UK and in Uganda, and that we really ought to pay attention to nutrition. That's what they opened my eyes. As you traveled across
2: Uganda, can you tell us what the people and the environment were like and and how that affected your ability to research?
0: Well, the people were wonderful in those days. I mean, you could travel around anywhere in Uganda and you were greeted like uh, kings and queens and things like that. The people were just phenomenal. There was no kind of racial problems as you might have had in Kenya, for example, because it was a protectorate. There was no um, colonial rule at all. It was a protectorate government. So it gave us freedom to travel uh, throughout Uganda, stay in uh, little places and, and enjoy the hospitality of the local Gombolola chief, which was always there, and it, and it was just a phenomenal time. The people were wonderful, and the the climate was was equitable because we were four thousand feet above sea level and and um, there was no winter. Uh, the trees would have a winter one side and then lose the leaves on one side, and then the other side would lose the leaves, um, and, and so, so on. It was just, and the garden was just full of things from pineapples to avocado pears and pomegranates and everything. It was, it was so fertile, it was just unbelievable. Dr. Crawford, if I may ask, what years were you there? Well, we're talking about 1960 to 65, but it was so interesting that I, with the grace of the Medical Research Council and um, the cancer campaign in the UK, I kept the, my laboratory while operating until 1972, um, after I took up the headship of biochemistry at the Nuffield Institute in London. And uh, I was commuting backwards and forwards. And it was, it was at that time that uh, we realized, when I came back to London, that when you set up a brand new laboratory of biochemistry, what are we going to do? And um, I, it was quite clear that the, the main problem with, with the UK was so well covered by people working on cardiovascular disease and cancer. But there was evidence, and we have published evidence in the Lancet, on the, the difference in lipid composition of the diet and the di- uh, lipid composition in East Africa. And that had relevance to the difference in disease in the two countries. And so we thought we should work on lipids. But um, as I said, you know, all the cardiovascular and, and cancer stuff was so well covered at the time in interested interest in dietary fats and so on. So we I said, hey, wait a minute, the brain, nobody's working on the brain. That's full of lipids. So why don't we work on the brain? So I set the lab up to, to basically to research on lipids in terms of the brain chemistry, what it was made of, and how did it get there.
3: So I think you're answering this question, Doctor Crawford. But I'd love to know how, again, that early work in Africa influenced the rest of your career.
0: Well, as I said before, the, the critical thing was the eyes opened, uh, having sort of come from a period of time when the discovery of DNA and genetics and things like that was was really number one. My eyes were opened to the. We've got a great power of nutrition over multi-generations to change people. And um, as I said, the, the interesting thing was how we actually got into the brain was, was a very simple thing. Because in East Africa, yeah. you were witnessing the, nature's last great experiment on mammalian evolution with all these animals all around you. And of course, the thing that struck me when you think about the gorillas and chimpanzees and things like that, which and baboons and so on, was the difference in the size of the brain. And so we asked a simple question: Was why? Why did animals have different sized brains? And so we studied some thirty-two different species of brain. And I was joined by Andrew Sinclair at the time, and he and I studied thirty-two different species of brain chemistry of lipids, and also looked at the livers of these animals, with the livers tending to reflect the sort of nutritional and genomic get-together, uh, ending up in what was present in the liver to feed the body. So the, the result was astounding. When we looked at the liver ke- chemistry, the fatty acids were all over the place. They went from 42% in the highest down to about 0.06%. Levulinoleic acid, and, and the same applied to practically every fatty acid. They were all over the place. But when you looked at the brain of these 32 species, they're all identical. The same chemistry, the same profile, rich in arachidonic acid, adrenic acid, and tricosahedralic acid, specifically that known as DHA or omega 3 tricosahedralic acid today. So the conclusion was a very simple conclusion that evolution. Had produced a single answer for brain chemistry and its function. Because brain's mainly made of fats and lipids. It's 60% lipid. It's not protein. It's it's the lipids that are important for the brain. And the key issue was that the brain was being made to this specific evolutionary honed profile for brain chemistry and function to the same design and prescription and chemistry. It was not the chemistry that changed from species to species. It was the extent to which the brain had evolved, the size of the brain. But that told us that arachidonic acid and glucosahexonolic acid were absolutely key components for the evolution of the brain throughout the mammalian species. And that set us off on the, when We published the data in 1971. And, of course, the glucosa acid story was uh, we, we provided evidence, the first evidence, for example, of a um, behavioral pathology in a primate on an omega-3 deficiency diet, for example. We published that in 1973. There was a lot of stuff, Andrew and I. And um, th- that was the beginning of it, 1971.
3: We talk about DHA. I- I'd like to know what you want people to know about DHA.
0: DHA is an irreplaceable structural and functional component of the signaling systems of the retina, the synapses and neurons of the brain. And you cannot make a brain without it. Now, there's an interesting fact about that, that where do you get omega-3 DHA from? And everybody knows the answer, but they don't think about it. Brain evolved in the sea, and it evolved in the sea. 500 million years ago. And we know from the chemistry of the cephalopods, the fish, the amphibia, the reptiles, the mammals, the birds, and ourselves that the chemistry using the hexanoic acid is exactly the same throughout that whole range of 500 million years of evolution. So that's something that is really very powerful evidence for its absolute essentiality cannot be replaced, and we published recently some evidence about that in terms of the quantum mechanical properties of DHA that can't be copied by uh, other similar molecules. The interesting thing, of course, is that you know this, because the pentanoic acid, which is only one double bond difference, that's all, it's identical, it's just one. So it's on the road to the synthesis of DHA, so easier to synthesize less susceptible to peroxidation, but never used, never. Only DHA over the 500 to 600 million years of evolution from the beginning of photoreception with the things like the um, dinoflagellates right through to the evolution, through to Homo sapiens today. It's invariable. And you have to have DHA in your diet not only to build a brain, but also to maintain it throughout life. And the source of DHA is the marine food web. Although it's also present in freshwater food webs throughout. And what do I want people to know about it? I want people to know about this because today we're seeing an increase in mental ill health. We're seeing a decline in measures of intelligence. And this is because since 1950 or thereabouts, there's been a swing away from, the balance between what we got from the sea and what we got from the land towards intensively produced land-based health. And that doesn't contain any DHA. And this is a problem that we have today. We've got to face this challenge of the rise in mental ill-health.
1: Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show.
2: I like what you just said. You have to have DHA in your diet, not only to build a brain, but to maintain it. So can you share about other sources of DHA, especially for those listening who may be vegan?
0: Oh. Anyone who's vegan or vegetarian, um, um, they, they avoid some of the horrors of the stuff that we, <laughs> we as omnivores tend to, to eat from the fatty, sugary level of the, of the supermarket. But they don't get DHA, but they can get it from marine algae. There's plenty of marine algae and plenty of edible marine algae that, are, that contain DHA, and it's not just DHA. Also, another thing that I want to warn about because it's also trace elements, things like iodine, selenium, zinc, and copper. Um, iodine, everybody knows about iodine deficiency and mental retardation, but not too many know about selenium, zinc, copper, manganese. These are trace elements which are used by the brain to build proteins that are take out rogue oxygen atoms in the brain that are likely to do damage. And DHA and arachidonic acid, both, are highly susceptible. And you have the highest concentrations of anywhere in the body, in the brain, for these. So you need powerful protection, especially because the brain uses, in the adult, 20% of all the energy that you use, yet it only occupies 2% of the body weight. So the amount of oxygen being burnt by the brain, being used by the brain, is phenomenal. And you've got to protect, protect, molecules like DHA and arachidonic acid, and the brain makes its own protective systems, both from DHA. Nicholas Bazan in New Orleans has shown that DHA produces its own protective molecule, uh, calls it uh, neuroprotection D1, he says, uh, a nice name. But it, it's really critically important, these trace elements, it's not just DHA. It, it, it coexists with in the marine food web with Trace elements, and you get these in the algae as well. And how about for the
2: non-vegetarian or non-vegan? What would be the best source of DHA?
0: Well, the best source of DHA is is the marine food web, and I would not want to pick anything out of the marine food web. You can start with scallops, oysters, mussels. Uh, and you can go move up from sardines to cod and uh, salmon and things like that. Anything from the marine food web is rich in DHA. And the beauty about the marine food web is, you can practically have a different meal from the larder of the marine stuff almost every night of the week, if not every night of the month, even. So there's so, so much variety there. It's just wonderful. And in America, you have some of the best seafood restaurants in the world.
3: I want to be sure to let our listeners know about your new book. It's called Brain Under Siege. I believe it's being published this summer. So I'd, I'd love to know who is the book intended for? And maybe just tell us a little bit about the work that went into that.
0: Well, I guess it's a sort of trip down memory lane. So thank you for asking about that. It, it is essentially telling the story of the brain. of um, it, It's in two parts. There's the first part is about Darwin, because, and this is, is to do with the present environmental crisis. What, in fact, Darwin said in his all six editions of his book was that there are two forces in evolution, natural selection and conditions of existence. And of the two, And he writes this in all six editions. Of the two, he says that the conditions of existence were the most powerful. That's actually blindingly obvious when you think about it. If if you have an animal that requires um, B92 and there's no B92 around, the animal can't survive regardless of whatever it is there. The conditions of existence, that's particularly the nutritional conditions, temperature and pressure are the things which determine what is possible in life? This was dumped by August Weismann, who didn't like it. He thought it was too Lamarckian. And, you know, he cut the tails off a whole bunch of mice, and um, uh, they continued to grow tails. So he said that conditions of existence doesn't fit anywhere in the evolution story. And he published a paper called The All-Sufficiency of Natural Selection. So you had neo darwinism which dumped the environmental concern of Darwin, and we've got to bring that environmental concern back. And uh, you know, Greater Sudbury and all the rest of them—they're on about climate change and everything. It's all Darwin talking. You hear Darwin talking. So we restore Darwin's original thesis on the impact of the environment as number one force in determining what happens evolutionarily. the second thing that we do is to talk about what I've just talked about, namely what we did in terms of the brain chemistry, how the brain evolved, and what it's made of. And what we're eating today is not compatible with a healthy brain. And that fits with this rise in the, the escalation of mental ill health. And if mental ill health continues to escalate, as it is doing at the moment, the outcome of that is the unthinkable. And that's obvious. It's just a straight logical conclusion that it really is the most serious threat to the sustainability of humanity. If we lose our brains, we lose everything. So the book is about that. That is the siege of, of the brain today. And we've got to do something about it. So we put forward solutions, which is a very simple one. Foresight, uh, a think tank, government think tank, reported a few years ago on the future of food and agriculture, what they said was that the land available for incorporating into arable use has reached a limit. We know that the oceans supply of fish and seafood reached a limit in the year 2000, yet population is expanding. 2000. It was six billion. It took only eleven years to get to seven billion, and it's still expanding. So where are we going to feed these people? And as far as we can see, it David Marsh and I, David the uh, I call them, who wrote, writes this, the Darwin stuff. The um, as far as we can see, it, the only solution is to start farming in the sea. Seventy-one percent of the globe is covered in the sea. And that has to be the future of humanity. And that will do two things. By, for example, planting kelp forests for your vegans and things like that. But also, kelp forests fix CO2 in the same way that rainforests do. So here we have an important contribution to the challenge of global warming. And it's not just the kelp forests, of course, it's all the phytoplankton and all the other photosynthetic things that we have in the marine food web that do the same thing. And the second thing, of course, is that kelp forests not only fix CO2, but they also provide food and fertilizer for use of land-based agriculture, replacing the trace elements that have been lost over the years and years and years of rain. So kelp Growing kelp forests is a really important issue in terms of, of what we can do in the future. The second thing is marine agriculture, in the same way that we grow grass pastures for cows and sheep and things like that, we also can grow grass pastures. Takahiro Tanaka in Yokohama in, in Japan is doing exactly that, doing grass pastures for the fish. And so you turn the deserts, the marine deserts that have been created by uh, endless trawlers scraping the the, the seabed, you turn these marine deserts into green pastures. And so you enhance all the phytoplankton and everything that's involved with marine productivity. And uh, Takahiro Tanaka has also used artificial reefs in, in the sea All seven different types of artificial reefs, each one designed to enhance the productivity of the environment for the seven different target species that he has, fish species. And they've tripled fish productivity. And it's it's so elementary, maybe a bit jewels-furnished, but it is so elementary. We have to start getting involved with marine agriculture. an island like the UK with its extensive coastline uh, countries just like Japan, we can do exactly the same with all the little islands and develop the um, marine resources in that way and the final solution to this is that of course it not only does all these wonderful things in terms of providing food for the expanding population but it also provides brain food provides brain food and that is a solution to the rising toll of mental ill health and the decline in IQ. And we could use this to help enhance the brain development for future generations of children so that we have children born that are better able to cope with this expanding situation that we have at the moment expanding populations and so on. Children that are more intelligent perhaps than we are. And children that are more sensible than we are, and hopefully children that would lead to a better solution of this planet for peace and progress.
3: I feel like we could talk for a lot more time, but unfortunately our time is up today. But I have to ask you, because we've opened up a couple different topics here that I'd really love to explore, would you be willing to come back and talk to us about another topic or the evolution of some of the topics we've talked about today? Yeah.
0: I'm happy to talk anytime. The more we can disseminate the importance of this message, the better and happier I will be. Well,
3: Dr. Crawford, you've had such an amazing level of work, body of work, and I'd love to explore that more as we can get on the next program. But thank you again so much for being here today.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me.
3: And I want to thank our listeners. And as always, be healthy, be well, and fight the good fight. Thanks so much.
1: This has been the science and the story behind Omega-3. Thanks to our sponsor, Wiley Companies. You can find them and more information about our show at wileyco.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Any statements on this podcast are the opinion of the scientific guest and or author and have not yet been evaluated by the FDA. The information we may provide to you is designed for educational purposes only is not intended to be a substitute for informed medical advice or care. This information should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any health issues or conditions without consulting a healthcare professional. If you are experiencing a health issue or condition, we suggest you consult with your healthcare professional.